Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Whole Truth. Great show for you today. Our guest is Ben Algy. Ben is going to be with us for multiple segments. First, we're going to discuss the Challenger sale, which is one of the most consequential academic studies on selling that has come out in a long time. Ben also hung around for the mailbag. We had a lot of fun there. And finally, we'll conclude, as always, with our Costanza Corner, where we'll answer the question, can you print a house? I have no idea what that means. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And just a little bit more about Ben's background, uh, because he's going to be a frequent guest with us on the show, because he's awesome. Uh, he is a sales executive at our shop. He has his MBA from Notre Dame. He's a CFA charter holder, uh, and he's also has experience in business consulting. So he spent many years in an executive leadership program at our parent company. Kurt, I don't know if you know this about Ben and I, and I'm releasing this for the first time in this intro. Do you know that Ben and I had an investment fund together called the Side Algae Fund, where we picked stocks? Did you know that? <laughs> well, you're still doing your day job, so I'm guessing it wasn't it, wildly successful. It was a two to four stock port. Actually, it was really good. We 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 had just finished our CFA program, and we we invested. So you're the smartest in, people in the world. <laughs> just geniuses, of course, have to be. <laughs> Two to four stocks in the portfolio, and it went really well. So, but here's the problem: something got in the way. Ben had to buy an engagement ring. Oh, so just destroyed. We would be on the cover of Barrons today. And just a few other points to learn more about us and listen to past episodes. Visit TouchstoneInvestments.com/slash/the-whole-truth. And we're really starting to get into a flow for releasing episodes. You can expect a new episode from us at least every other Tuesday. And as always, you can reach out to us at thewholetruth at touchstonefunds.com for any reason, including getting added to our distribution list. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And without further ado, here's our chat about the Challenger sale with Ben Algy. And we are very pleased to have our good friend, Ben Algy, join the podcast. Ben, welcome to The Whole Truth. Thank you. Honored to be here. If you could see us all right now, you'd notice two bums that are sitting in their house. Although, Kurt, you look kind of nice, but me, you know, I'm in my my hat and my t-shirt. And Ben had to get dressed up in a suit and tie to go to our home office to do this interview. How, how kind of you. That's pretty amazing. You know, I, I go above and beyond for you guys, um, but yeah, it's tough putting the tie back on after uh, four or five months here of just uh, sitting in golf shirts and khakis, enjoying myself. It's got to be but, weird. Uh, it's very weird. It's very weird. I had to polish up the shoes I haven't worn in four months, make sure there are no moth holes in the suits, but uh, I don't know. It's uh, It feels different, but it's good to be back in a way, but I'm ready to uh, get back to work from home here as soon as we're done with this interview. The great irony is this is probably how a lot of our clients see us when we come in a suit and tie and they're wearing like a golf polo. Just, For sure. Look, look like, at these look clowns at this idiot. all dressed up. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No one knows why we still wear ties. No one no one really <laughs> knows because, I mean, you just stand out. You're like, oh, there's the wholesaler coming down. Like, why do we do? I, I don't know. I think it's us and know. attorneys and it's basically it's the uniform. You see, you see somebody in a, like a navy blue suit. Here comes the wholesaler walking down the street. What's funny about how you described your your outfit is you described when you were at home, uh, it was what'd you say, khakis and and collared shirts. That's what you're wearing. So I I'm more of like I'm in sweatpants all day, but you seem to be dressing like like a gap catalog walking around your house. West right? West Coast a little more laid back. 
<laughs> a little not. bit more labor. <laughs> Here in the Midwest, <laughs> we keep it a little classier. You keep it classy. Well, audience members should should really get used to Ben, and I I, I mean this honestly, Ben. Uh, we we're really looking forward to having you on, but not just this time. Many times, you are welcome on here anytime you'd like, and that's because you know I've Kurt and I have both known Ben for a lot of years. Uh, the dude is uh, he's awesome. He's got some great insights. You know, for our firm, he runs our Eastern division, but he has a, a pretty extensive background. He's got a CFA charter um, background in management consulting and MBA. So just a really, really great guy to have on the show. So you're welcome anytime, Ben. I appreciate it. And I love what you guys are doing. I've, uh, I've listened to all the episodes uh, thus far and uh, am, a, am an avid fan and uh, honored to, uh, to be a part of it and uh, to get to participate a little more. So I appreciate it. A little peel behind the onion. What most of us call Ben, not that he's not his own person in his own right, but he's really Steve's side 2.0. Is that right? A lot That's of a the, thing. A lot of the good things that Steve brought to the organization, Ben's just taken him to a whole nother level. So we'd like to give Ben a lot more credit than we, when we do side. I appreciate so welcome, that. Steve 2.0. I appreciate you know that. that. I'll tell you what, it's like when you got, I have an older sister. I always tell her, you know, you, you try your best, but then you really, once you perfect it the second time, you just stop having kids. And so once we've perfected <laughs> Steve the second time, uh, there's no Steve 3.0 out there. It is, it is really funny that, you know, Ben and I were both in this executive leadership program uh, with the parent company out of MBA school. And so Ben and I have, have collaborated a lot. And then he came to touch on afterwards. And it is interesting that there were several times where I've kind of started something and and then Ben took it over and quite frankly made it a whole lot better. And I sort of reflect, I'm like, how does that, you know, I, I, maybe it's a bit like, Ben, you tell me if this resonates with you. It's like, you've got this entrepreneur and he's got this great idea, right? And then at some point when the, you know, it gets traction and catches on and then, you know, the board of directors come in and say, okay, you know, it's fine. Uh, but, but it's time for you to, we like, we need a real <laughs> manager to take over. Like when Elon Musk starts getting on Joe Rogan and doing that whole thing, like maybe it's time to, to exit slow. I don't know how you look about it. I'm curious how you see that. How did yeah. you end up? It, yeah. it, it's certainly not that extreme where they move you out, but there's there's definitely elements where I see people like you and, and Kurt who uh, are are so strong on, uh, on the innovation side, who can take an take an idea that isn't even recognized yet and solve a problem that that isn't known that it's out there. Um, and then there's other folks that I think I fall into the latter camp where it's optimizing what exists. So taking an idea that's really good and saying, how do we actually execute on this going forward? Um, and I think that's where I kind of fall in and found my niche uh, in this organization. Um, but uh, it takes both to, to make the world spin. And uh, I, I look at the things that, that you all do on, on the creative side, and it makes my head hurt because uh, those, I, 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 don't, I don't see that side. Um, but once there's an idea in front of me, then it's a little easier for me to, to grapple with it. Right back at you. As as an ideas guy and a not and a non optimizer, if if I had a dollar for every time I've called Ben to help optimize a spreadsheet that I had broken <laughs> or an idea that I had that he actually came got and and brought it to life on a spreadsheet, um, I'd be doing all right. This is going to haunt me someday, though. I'm sure in a job interview at some point in 20 years, they're going to ask me if I'm innovative. I'm like, well, on the podcast back in uh, 2020, <laughs> you said you weren't very innovative. <laughs> You got to be careful. People can search all this stuff. Now. I know this yeah. is this is all in the permanent domain now. We'll have you back on to start your counter narrative next time. Ben. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Special so on innovation. 
<laughs> yeah. So what what we're gonna what we're gonna do with Ben and is we're gonna keep him on the whole episode, which is rare. We're not gonna do that with many guests, but Ben Ben will be one of those rare people we'll do that with. We want to go through a specific topic with him, which is the Challenger sale. Really, really insightful topic. It's it's useful to anyone who has sales and their roles and responsibilities, or even sales adjacent. It's kind of paradigm changing in terms of how it looks at it. So we're looking forward to going through that with Ben. And then we're also going to keep Ben around uh, for our mailbag segment. So we'll read some questions. We'll all go through it. That sound good to you, Ben? That sounds great. Okay. So Kurt and I both did kind of a half decent job about introducing you, but tell us about your background, where you're coming from. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Steve. So yeah, I uh, did my MBA work over at uh, the University of Notre Dame over in Indiana. And uh, right out of there, joined Western Southern Financial Group here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Midwestern kid, wanted to stay close to home, and I uh, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And so rotational programs were in vogue at the time. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll get a chance to do a lot of different jobs and see which one appeals. Uh, went through that program uh, and then wanted to stay close to asset management. So joined Touchstone Investments the uh, better part of a decade ago. And uh, worked on the product side and actually came to sales a little differently than most uh, as uh, head of product management investment strategy here at Touchstone. Uh, and then uh, with the topic we're going to discuss today, the challenger sales, among other things, uh, was brought over to the sales side to try to bring a bit of a paradigm shift, as you mentioned, to how we approach the sales process. And how's that going? Were, were, you, were you given the gold, a golden nugget or were you giving a different color nugget uh, when you took over on the sales side? Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, the gold needed some polish uh, with what we were doing, mm-hmm. but, uh, but the turnaround's been great. It's a, it's a great organization. There's great products behind us and there's great people. And, you know, you put those pieces together. It doesn't take a genius to drive that ship. Very modest of you. Very modest. So uh, that's good background on you. Let's talk about uh, the background of the Challenger sale. How, how did this book, how did this paradigm changer, this way of thinking become part of the the culture really and, and the organization at Touchstone? Yeah. So we were introduced to it better part of five years ago. Um, and the book was brought to the organization. And I will say up front, I was very skeptical. And here's the reason why I love I love to read books, and maybe that, that might be an overstep. I love to listen to books. Big audiobook guy, um, but I really dislike or take a skeptical eye towards books that oversimplify things, like the seven mm-hmm. steps that will make you sell more. If it was that simple, I think everybody would be doing it. And so when I get those kind of books, I prefer to read like a biography of somebody who's successful and determine what made them successful myself and try to implement those things. So when I got a book like The Challenger Sale, it was immediate skepticism of, you know, I don't think you're alone with that. I don't think I I don't think I was either. But it's one of the few books in that in that genre that really changed my perspective. And so the concept is, you know, the most successful salespeople are those that can identify problems and opportunities that the client isn't already aware of. So instead of going in and being entirely consultative and saying, what do you need me to help you with or what are the problems you're facing? You can go in and say, here's a problem you didn't know you have and solve it for them. And that changes the dynamic on a number of different levels uh, and makes the salesperson uh, really take charge of the conversation. Yeah. And one of the challenges that I had with it, not to overuse the word, was that it it was so data driven. And you know, as a sales guy and a, and a more intuitive kind of thinker, I immediately 
kind of threw up my hands with that. It was like, what, what are these data nerds going to figure out about sales that salespeople themselves don't actually know? But it's but it's pretty nuanced in in how they get into personality types. And so I think that's a great differentiator in the in the book. What what are some of those personality types that they talk to that really kind of turns upside down how we think about salespeople? Yeah. And so if you if you ask the average salesperson who they're who the best salesperson in their organization is, they'll give you a name and they'll almost always say, because they've got the best relationships. That's why they're the best. And so they go through the relationship builder is, is the one that kind of sticks out in my mind as the person who can get to know anybody and has a lot of friends in the, in the industry. What they found is that's actually one of the least successful models. Um, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. Uh, the others were the problem solver, the hard worker, the lone wolf, all of them pretty self-explanatory about kind of what that uh, individual looks like. Then there was the challenger. Um, and the biggest difference I see between the relationship builder and the challenger is the relationship builder is out there and doing their job to make people happy and build relationships. They don't want to create any tension. They don't want to disrupt the status quo. They want people to like them. The challenger has relationships and has incredible relationships, but they're a result of how they sell, not the purpose of why they're trying to sell. So because of the challenger, they come in and they add value. They bring new new ideas and solve problems that the, the client didn't know existed. That builds a relationship in the back end and leads to a stronger relationship long term. So yeah, and that, so we're getting down the path a little bit in these relationship ty- types. And what we should have said up front is the foundation of the Challenger sale was this study, was a very broad study. So talk a little bit about you know the study itself and what these people actually did. Yes, they went out and studied top performers uh, across a number of industries. And what they found was that 40% of top sales performers primarily use the challenger style. And so that was the highest. But what what I take from that is there's a lot of different ways to do this job successfully. You know, I talk to my wholesalers and say, there's a hundred ways to do this job right. There's a thousand ways to do it wrong. There's a hundred ways to do it right. But the most successful was that of the challenger. Only 7% of those top performers were those relationship builders. And so when you see that discrepancy, you've got to ask yourself, what's causing that big of a rift? And what are challengers doing that the relationship builders aren't that's making them so successful? It's not just what you're selling. It's how you sell. And that was really kind of interesting to me because if you look at, you know, go to a company and you'd say, you know, why do, why do clients buy your product or your service? They'll say, well, it's because our reputation is so wonderful and uh, our pricing is on point and we've got this bells, bell and whistle and these bells. We wear a suit and tie. We wear a suit and tie in the office and look the part like Ben. Um, But the truth is, you know, all that stuff is, is table stakes and that gets you to the dance, so to speak, but that's not what's going to close the sale at all. You're exactly right. And you look at the industry we, we operate in, uh, you know, selling active, actively managed mutual funds and SMAs, uh, having a good product is, to your point, table stakes. There, How many good large cap growth funds are there out there? And so in the absence of some other value add uh, in the client experience, you're left competing just on price. Uh, and that's a dangerous place to play. And we're seeing, you know, uh, margin compression both on our side of the business and the financial professional side of the business. It can't always be just get cheaper. And so the challenger sale allows you to come in and add value to the client experience in a much different way and differentiate yourself 
uh, as a value-add partner as opposed to just a vendor of products. Relationship is the result of, not the cause of successful selling. So that gets to the point that these relationship builders that we thought are the best salespeople in the world, um, that's why they're not necessarily the tops because those deep relationships come from you know, the sales experience that you're delivering. And think about the impact this should have on how we think about hiring. You know, we, we look at hiring salespeople and what's the first thing we ask? Who do you know? Who are your relationships? When all the research now is telling us that's not necessarily the driver. It, the question should be, how are you building relationships? How do you build those relationships and add value? Yeah. We actually had a conversation with a, a behavioral psychologist as well, and that's he said that about the financial professionals that, that we serve as well, that he sees hiring really changing for that role in the coming years as um, an analytics, a, a strong financial background, as someone who's empathetic, an emotional thinker, a problem solver, um, a complete 180 of the characteristics that historically some of the big shops have looked for when they're when they're hiring, and I I don't think that's exactly the case on on our side as well. I completely. Agree. I also like to think that coming from a non traditional background, that's, that's right. I, I have to think that it's it's all those emotional intelligence pieces that are so hard to teach. I mean, I can teach people how to do the challenger sale. I can't teach you to have empathy. Um, so it, it's a lot more difficult. But when you get it right, uh, all the more impactful. What are the characteristics of of that person? that can be learned that are involved with, with, the, with that approach? Yeah, so, so three big ones I would point out. Uh, one, they're comfortable debating and pushing their client. Um, so they don't have a problem uh, creating that kind of constructive tension that takes place in a meeting. They're comfortable saying, I think you're wrong, uh, in a respectful way, obviously, uh, but having that conversation. Uh, they come prepared with a different worldview. So, with the challenger sale, you've got to be exponentially more educated than having a consultative approach. Because you think about what we're talking about and identifying problems that someone doesn't know exist. You're not going to have the same experience as going in and solving a problem they already know of. So an advisor says to me, I don't like EM. And I say, I hate AM too. There's no pushback in there. If they come and say, I don't like EM. And I tell them, well, I think it's the biggest growth opportunity that we're going to see for the next five to 10 years. And here's why. I better be able to defend that. So coming with a different worldview that is backed up by some data and evidence. Uh, and the last piece, and the one that gets overlooked sometimes, is they've got to understand the client's business and understand it to an extent even more so than the client does sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. Because we got to solve the problem that the client has, not the problem we think the client has. And so you've really got to wrestle with what are the true barricades um, or roadblocks that, that, that your client's facing. Uh, and not necessarily just the ones that they're going to tell you they have. But what does your research and data show you that are true problems that they don't they aren't aware of yet that we can help them with? I watched a video, uh, one of the two guys that did the challenger sales study, and he presented a little bit th on this. And he he just echoing what you just said. He said salespeople have been trained to come in there and ask open ended questions, and how ineffective that that actually is nowadays. So someone comes in your office and says. Um, you know, Ben, what, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. And, and the guy, the guy was like, well, what keeps me up at night is another sales guy coming in asking me what keeps me up at night. Right. <laughs> it's, it's what should be keeping me up at night that I don't know. So if I can come in there and, and this is the foundations of what we're doing with practice management, with par, with, you know, the podcast is understanding these businesses well enough to know what, 
what mo- what their challenges are because we see the same thing over and over and helping with those right and bringing a perspective that they're not getting elsewhere and that's kind of the basis of this whole thing right you're exactly right and so we've got the benefit we've worked with over 2000 teams across the country on practice management we know what the problems are better than our clients do a lot of times because our clients have worked in one practice and so bringing that sort of client data into these interactions completely changes the conversation. If I can sit across from an advisor and tell them, you know, the average advisor I work with has 325 different investments, and guess what? You're probably right in there with them and talk about the amount of time and cost and risk associated with that. That is an eye-opening experience. And now I'm competing against one other person who knows that information. If I go into that same meeting and say, what are your problems? And they say, I need a large cap growth fund. I'm the 20th person that asked that question. I'm the 20th fund they're going to look at, and I better be the cheapest um, because there's a lot of other good strategies out there. So it completely changes the conversation and changes the power in that conversation from the client back to you because you control where that conversation goes because you control where you're going to challenge. So, so if you're bringing solid nuggets like that out the gate, that's only going to intrigue the other person is like, well, what other little nuggets are they going to be able to drop on me along the way? You're right. And you better have something else behind that too, because if that's all you got, <laughs> it's, you're going to fall flat pretty quick. So it takes a deeper level of knowledge. It can be a narrower level, level of knowledge because you're not asking, you know, where do you want to take this conversation? There aren't a hundred responses to that. You're saying, here's what's important. Let me educate you on this. And so it can be narrow and deeper, but it needs to be a deep level of knowledge. You introduced the concept of constructive tension. And I want you to kind of talk about that yet again, because I think that's a really integral part of, of the challenger sale. It is. And it's, it's actually one of my favorite concepts in the, in the entire book. And it's, it's a, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you know something exists before you have a name for it, and then you learn what it is, and then you look back and say, that's what I was experiencing for all those years. That happened to me with this. Um, it's one of the biggest pitfalls I see with new salespeople and where you see these relationship builders go is they hate discomfort. They immediately want to get discomfort out of the meeting. Uh, and the problem is tension creates catalyst for change. Without tension, there is no catalyst. Um, you know, clients don't sit there thinking, I need to be sold something. You need to create that tension. There's a problem that exists in order to create that catalyst for movement. Um, so when we talk about this, uh, the concept of productive tension. We want to highlight an issue. We want to highlight the impact it's going to have, whether it be financially, emotionally, whatever it is on the advisor. And then we want to be quiet and let it sit and let the advisor or the client work out for themselves what the solution needs to be. Because our natural response is oftentimes, you know, we're at the end of a sale and we'll say, when do you think you'll make a decision? And you feel that productive tension. And the younger salesperson says, you know, you don't need to decide today. Just, just let me know what you think. And that eases the tension. But what you've done is ease the catalyst. And so creating that tension, that a decision needs to be made, that there is discomfort, and letting the client resolve that discomfort is how we create these catalysts. It's easy to see how productive tension could be useful for financial professionals as well. It's the same dynamic, right? You're, you've got a client you're going after. They can have the same level of you know, where they lack a catalyst to change. Exactly. And it could be it could be the catalyst to change advisors or just the catalyst to have a financial advisor. Um, the same element works. And especially as you go further upstream, you know, the small clients will be amazed that you can cite the S&P 500 returns. Um, but those aren't, 
you know, the prospective clients we're all trying to go after, we're trying to go after multi-million dollar clients here. Those are the ones that you've got to come with problems that they aren't aware they have. And it gets back to the concept, and I know you guys have talked about this a lot with practice management, of niche marketing, of knowing the niche you work in better than the people in that niche know themselves, knowing what problems they face, whether it be within their careers, their families, uh, their organizations, all of those different things. If you can bring those elements up and say, you have this problem, how are you going to solve this problem without me? And then just wait. The answer is going to be the solution that you're providing them because it's not a problem they came to you and asked. They didn't know the problem existed. You're competing against yourself, one of one, and that whatever solution you present is going to be the best solution they've heard. Yeah. So let's take a, a specific example of that. So let's say I'm going after, I don't know, a biotech niche. I'm throwing it, I'm throwing it around out there. And you go to someone who's an executive or whomever at the firm, someone of importance, and you can go up to them and you know they treat it as a typical financial professional meeting, but you could say, "Listen, I've I've worked with twenty five other uh, biotech executives. Here is what their challenges are." So you're telling them more about them, the stuff they don't know, the challenges that they may. And so think about how powerful that is, as opposed to just the run of the mill meeting where you're like, "I work for firm X, Y, and Z, and we build." equity portfolios. I mean, think about the difference between those two experiences. You're absolutely right. Well, the inverse of that is is the the person that enters the meeting and says, we work with businesses, wealthy families, and entrepreneurs to help them reach their financial goals. Yeah. And that says nothing. That, yeah. that, I mean, what, what, what did I learn from that? You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And if you take it a step farther, if you know, you know the company well enough, you can say, this is the way that your benefits company invest your pension, mm. or this is the way your benefits company handles retirement. How is your current financial advisor incorporating that into the investment plan they have for you and your long-term financial plan? They aren't. They yeah. aren't. I am. I raised that problem for you, created that tension. The solution is you need an advisor who knows this plan inside and out, and that is us and for whatever reason that may be. So let's get into the meat of it and what this framework for the challenger sale actually is. What's the original framework and um, how can we simplify it? And how can our, our audience actually take these concepts and incorporate it into the conversations that they're going to have tomorrow? Yeah. So the original framework is, is six steps. And to be honest with you, that caused some challenges for us in implementation initially because people got hung up in the, uh, in the steps. We salespeople, you know, six is a big number for us. Uh, yeah, it is. But if we go through those six initial steps, uh, there's the warmer, which is basically just setting up the conversation, the reframe, which is the challenge, so reframing an issue uh, in a way we hadn't thought of, rational drowning is supporting that then with data to show that it truly is a problem, tying into the emotional impact, how's that going to make you feel, providing a new way, not necessarily your way, but a new way to solve that problem, and then finally our own personal solutions. So those are the six steps. Now, when I implement this myself with my team, I narrow that down to just three steps. Challenge, inform, and solve. Challenge them with a problem they don't know they have, inform them why it's a problem and how it's gonna make them feel, and solve that problem with the solution. How do financial professionals implement this with their clients? What are the issues those clients aren't aware that they have? Whether it be related to their job, their family, the organizations they, they work with, they all know that they need retirement income. They all know they need an investment plan. That's not differentiating. But everybody's coming to them with those, those elements. And so at that point, you're negotiating on price. If everybody brings me a financial plan and everybody brings me retirement income, how much are you going to charge me to do it? And if you're the cheapest, I'll probably go with you. 
if we get away from that and say, I know you need all these things, but based on where you work, you have this problem associated with your retirement or based on the structure of your family or the challenges your family has, you have these needs in retirement that you didn't, weren't aware of. Now I can educate you on what those needs are, why they're relevant, and let you know what solution solves that, and nobody else is bringing those elements to the table. Now, as I mentioned before, you're competing against, it's one of one. You're no longer one of many competing on price, things like that. You're the only solution to the problem that you've raised, and you've upped your chances of closing that business exponentially. That's great. So let, let me see if I can sum up on this concept a little bit here. So Challenger Sale is a book that that came out that was uh, went through an exhaustive study of different salesperson types. The types of salespeople that we thought were most effective actually were not. And the type that was most effective was called the challenger. You know, if you're a listener to this podcast, reach out to us at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. We're happy to get you a copy. We're also happy to help you with the technique. There are approaches that you can take that will allow you to be more effective in meetings and in front of clients. Would, would you add anything else, uh, Ben, in terms of summing up that you want our audience to know about Challenger? Does that kind of encapsulate what you would say? That encapsulates it. Uh, the only piece I would add is that it's a much more fun way to sell. Uh, yeah. You mm-hmm. enable yourself to add value in every interaction uh, because you're coming with a different idea. And it uh, challenges you to keep, you know, bringing fresh ideas to the table. Um, but I enjoy the sales experience a lot more when we do it. Yeah, and we're we're oh we're really happy to help you with it. We spend a lot of time on this. We train on it. So um, so thanks, Ben, for this discussion on the Challenger sale. We're going to get into the mailbag next. That should be fun. So stick with us. We'll be back with Ben Alger. And welcome back. We're going to jump into the mailbag. But to start us off, I actually want to throw in a question that we get often on the Challenger sales. So, Ben, this is going to go to you. Um, what about the pitfalls in the process? So it's like anything else. All this sounds good. You know, we want to be more, you know, take this approach because we know it works. We want to be more like a Challenger. What What are some of the pitfalls that you've seen? Yeah. So uh, the biggest one that I've come across and the one that we tripped over quite a bit with implementation was the challenger does not replace your entire meeting. And most specifically, it doesn't replace the need for discovery questions up front to understand what's a client working with or wrestling with today. Um, if you you have your challenger concept and you go in right out of the bat and say, you know, great to see you, Mr. And Mrs. Client. Here's a problem you didn't know you had. And they respond, yeah, I solved that last week. You've kind of shot your shot. Uh, so yeah. there still needs to be that lead up and that conversation um, at a very high level about what they're seeing, um, what their day to day is like. Uh, and it's that the warmer, as they call it in the challenger sale. But you have to set up the conversation and ensure you know that what you're talking about is news to them. Because if you don't, uh, you really take a lot of the wind out of your sales right out of the get go and, and the meeting falls apart pretty quickly. Have you found different personality types struggle more with this? Or is this something, this concept that can be taught to just about anyone? I've seen it taught just about anyone, to be completely honest with you. Um, it's it's not, it's, it's very simple. It's not necessarily easy. So we talk about, you know, there's three steps. Uh, that's very simple. Uh, the piece that's difficult is the emotional intelligence to know when do I dial this up? When can I be more combative and what personality types can I be combative with? And when is somebody just not going to respond well to being challenged in that way? 
We all know clients who need to be the smartest person in the room and challenge them on a concept isn't going to lead to good results. And you've just got to commiserate and you've got to go about it a different way. Uh, and that's fine. This isn't a one size fits all. But for most interactions and most people, they want value added. They want to hear new ideas. They want new concepts brought to the table. And so 80 to 90% of your interactions, I think this fits uh, beautifully. And it's like anything else that we said earlier, it's a good framework, but you, at the end of the day, you have to be intuitive enough to realize that if, if someone's not going to change their mind, if someone is, if you're not going down a good road, abort the mission and find another path. Exactly. I, one of my, one of the first, uh, when I first started managing, we were rolling this out and uh, one of my more experienced wholesalers who was more set in his ways, I was traveling with him and he did exactly what I mentioned, walked into a meeting and says, emerging markets growth is the best growth opportunity of the next 10 years. And if you're not looking at it, you're an idiot. And the client <laughs> said, well, I got a 15% allocation. Is that what you're talking about? And yes, yes, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Where do you go from there? Uh, so that was lacking that emotional intelligence or, or that, that discovery up front to, to make the conversation relevant. That's a strong pitch right there. <laughs> Came out of the gates hot. Came out hot. Yeah, I, I, I would also throw out there's got to be substance there. It takes work. So for you to be able to be an effective challenger, you really have to work really hard at knowing, you know, the business of the person that you're you're selling to. That takes effort. That takes work. The average salesperson is not going to do it. The average financial professional is not going to do it. But that creates this huge opportunity for those that are willing to do it. Yeah, an old Rich, Richard Wildman quote, uh, the average advisor reads two books a year. Why? Because they're average. Uh, the average advisor <laughs> yeah. uh, isn't putting in that work to do that. And that's such an easy way to differentiate yourself, especially if you can be narrowly focused. As we mentioned with the niche marketing, you don't need to be all things to all people. Be really, really good at a really small subset, and it's going to change everything you do. Yeah, think about how much how much better you can be than the average financial professional if you just have that focus and that effort. All right, so let's let's jump into um, into the mailbag listener questions. Um, this comes from Jeff S. out in the Sacramento area, Rockland specifically. What does our industry look like in ten years? And he's asking us in terms of asset management. Ben, um, I'd be interested in your take on this question. Oh man, I got to be careful how I answer this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be careful. Don't no, be careful. yeah, that's. Uh, uh, there's a lot of change coming. Uh, I think we're going to see more and more consolidation. Um, you know, for right or wrong, active management specifically in our in our industry has become commoditized. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of active management is a commodity because it behaves just like an index or an ETF. Um, so I truly believe there is a place for passive investing in, in ETFs. I truly believe there's a place for truly active investing that behaves a lot different than, than uh, a benchmark. But I think the stuff in between is going to get rationalized away and it's going to fall one way or the other. You're either going to become like the benchmark and just get ETF'd away or you'll become more and more active. And on that end of the spectrum, uh, then we really see you know skills start to make a difference and, and stock picking ability. And that's where it gets interesting. Uh, so I think more consolidation in the industry. I think there'll be fewer asset managers. Um, the big will probably get bigger and it'll get tougher for the smaller to survive. But those that do will truly come with a differentiated experience and differentiated outcomes that clients appreciate and will pay for. Kurt, anything you want to add to that? I'd just be curious what you see from the asset management side with how technology and digital engagement is 
has has grown in the last several years and what you expect that to look like in this same time horizon in, in 10 years. I wonder if we've seen a window into our future here with these last four or five months of, of working from home. Um, and if it is, it's a bit of a scary future where I, I, you know, I feel like I'm back to internal wholesaling days again, where it's just a lot of conference calls and WebExes. Uh, the, the truth is, I don't think we had moved that direction enough as an industry prior to this. And we've probably gone too far by necessity because of it. And the answer is somewhere in between. But at the end of the day, there, I, I firmly believe there was always going to be a place for face-to-face engagement and that the relationships built in person are inherently deeper than those built in a digital perspective. That said, do I see myself back on a plane traveling 80% of the time ever again? I don't think that's reality. Um, I think there's, you know, we talk about um, margin compression. Quick way to compress that margin is take my airline miles and cut them in half. Uh, and if I can do some of these meetings, you know, via WebEx or Zoom, whatever it is, uh, I think that becomes uh, uh, reality here, not just in future. So definitely moving more digitally. I don't think we ever get to what some of the dooms, you know, doomsday sayers are saying of, you know, all wholesaling is going to be now in this hybrid format. Uh, there's still a need for people to be there, be on the ground. Uh, but I think you see larger territories for, for you know, people in our roles because we can have a lot larger reach uh, with a digital engagement. I'm fairly active on various social media platforms and to see like big name shops with tweets or LinkedIn posts and they get little to no engagement. I'm curious, first of all, why is that? Is is the content that they're putting out absolute garbage or has people's consumption habits not caught up with those platforms? I think that'll be really interesting to see because in some cases, a 60 second update from a portfolio manager on a video is in a lot of cases a lot more efficient than wholesalers running around, but behavior hasn't caught up to the technology. Yeah. And I think we we tend to be a slow moving industry. If you look at how most of our industry has approached uh, social media, it's been take what we do not in social media and put on social media. So here, Twitter, here's a white paper we wrote about you know, South American equity. That's 10 pages long. <laughs> and nobody nobody goes to Twitter for a 10-page white paper on South American equities. But to your point, yeah. if if we turn on its head and say, why are people on these uh, different platforms? What are they trying to consume and rework uh, the knowledge that we have? Uh, I think it's absolutely a valuable outlet. Um, it's just getting the industry to look at it differently. And then there's always the compliance hurdles that slow us down a little bit as well. But uh, in 10 years, I mean, I think you get left behind if we if we ignore that. You know, these are all going to be platforms that people are going to gravitate to more and more as younger folks that are technology natives run more money, whether it's it's on the financial professional side or the asset management side. So you have to swim in those waters, but um, just curious the ripples that will be created in those waters for the foreseeable future. They always talk about the three P's and the three ways you can add value, whether it be on a personal side, a product side, or a practice side. The ability to just rely on any one of those, I think, is being brushed away. And uh, you used to be able to just be you know, a nice guy who knew everybody, and you were everybody's friend, you remember everybody's birthday, and you were the personal guy. Um, or you're the product guy. You know, you had the big name behind you, so you come in and just do that. I think you've really got to be able to do all three of those now. And you've got to be able to connect on a personal level. You've got to bring competitive product. And you've got to be able to help in their practice and identify problems in a client's practice that we can really help solve. And those that can't are going to get washed out. And, 
you know, the number of wholesalers isn't increasing out there. Uh, there's, you know, reports every day about different cuts that are happening. And so it's on all of us to make sure that those three elements are sharp. Okay. So let's go to question two. Um, this comes from my friend, Doug F out in Oakland, and he sent some questions in related to our, you know, our client service series. He kind of has four different questions. So let's start with, with this, Ben, how often should you segment clients? What do you think about that? Uh, I advise the teams I work with to do it annually. Any more often than annually, you just don't see things change that often. And if your segmentation is leading to changes in client service, changing a client service model more than annually is pretty disruptive to the relationship. And so uh, my, my response there would be on an annual basis, you should at least review it, if not make changes at that point. That's exactly what I would say. Kurt, agree with that or any other, anything you'd add there? Yeah, I, especially when you think about if you make changes to the segmentation, how you're changing the service model, it's disruptive to the business, not just the relationships, but the, the, the daily business. For sure. That's, I think, plenty. Yeah, Doug does it every two years, but I think, you know, the one to two year time frame, I think that's 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 about right. Should everyone uh, on the team get a vote? I'm going to not pass this along to you, Ben, and answer it for and just say, absolutely. We talked in that episode about scoring clients on you know, relationship as being a key part of that. And a lot of times it's the sales assistants that can help with that relationship score. Is that kind of your guys' thoughts on that as well? For sure. I mean, there, there's, uh, at the end of the day, if you can build consensus, all the better. Now, somebody has to be king or queen and have the final say. Um, but the most plugged in people within any sort of advisory team are the assistants. Uh, they're the ones who interact on a day-to-day -day basis. We do an exercise a lot of times where we'll ask the team members and the assistants all to write their top three and bottom three clients for the practice. And I'm yet to see them align because what the assistants see is how they treat them, how efficient they are, if they respond. What the advisors typically see is the assets and revenue. And so you've got to bring in that qualitative side, and that's what the assistants know best. So I... I I think that's a fairly obvious yes. Everyone should get a vote, but should all votes be weighted equally? Let's say financial professional thinks that the relationship score is top of the top. And then you talk to the sales assistant and it's the complete opposite and they feel exact opposite. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, you've got to weight the voice to the person who's running the business, I think. Um, my, my point was uh, not that it should be equal by any stretch, uh, but that that voice needs to be heard. Uh, and incorporate it in. And so when we do exercises of, of client segmentation, uh, we'll have the assistant do theirs separately. And then you bring them together and say, where are their discrepancies? Let's have a conversation about them. Kurt, this next one I'm sending to you. And of course, uh, Ben, we'll, we'll get your feedback as well. Should we expect referrals? Absolutely. So when, when we do ask for mailbag feedback, people are always asking about growth. And we always talk about the easiest pond to fish in, the easiest way to grow is from the referral base, your clients that you already have. And we could argue six ways to Sunday on what the best approach for doing that is. Is at the beginning of a, of a meeting? Is at the end of the meeting? How do you phrase it? But the whole idea of what we talk about of segmenting, of servicing is expecting those referrals. Yeah, I would concur, assuming you are referable. That's and it. So, Ooh, yeah. good, good point. I would... I would ask a client, you know, take take your best client and ask them, if somebody asked you, what do I do, what would you tell them? And if what you hear from them is some of that mishmash of, well, they helped me secure my retirement and they pick some investments, uh, that's hard to be referable. If they were to say, 
Well, they contact me every month, 12 months a year. We have four quarterly reviews. Two of those are in person. And any time that I reach out to them for help, they respond within an hour and give me a solution within 24 hours. That, I think, is very referable. Um, so make sure that your COIs, your referral sources, can clearly and concisely say what you do and what value you add, I'm making the assumption that everyone's adding value. Um, and then I think you should expect referrals from your top clients and top COIs. Yeah, I, I would concur. I think it's the top part of the book that I'd be, I'd be most interested in evaluating on that. And if the referrals weren't coming, I, again, I feel like I've said this on a prior episode, but I'll, I'll say it again. I would not necessarily go to those clients and try to, you know, have some script that ex, you know pushes them a little bit. I'd say, what do we have to do to up the experience? I think referrals come naturally from a good client experience. That's what I think. Let's go to the next question. Ben, I'll send this to you. Do we insist they consolidate all of their assets and liabilities with us? So you're with, uh, you know, you've got clients, you know, they have outside assets. You know, this again, this is part of Doug's question. Do you force the issue to to make sure that all those assets are with you? So I think insist is a, is a strong word there. Um, I would strongly encourage, and certainly you could leverage the challenger and say on this front to say what the problems it presents for you not to have all assets in house. Uh, but if I've got a seven-figure client uh, who isn't going to consolidate their assets with me, I'm not sure I'm going to move them out of my practice just for that reason. Um, asset consolidation is key, and it does help paint a more complete picture. Um, and I think you can help communicate that and show what the advantages are. Uh, I don't know that I'd go as far as to say insist. So not quite the throat punch of the sal- challenger sale not on this one. Not quite the huh? throat punch, yes. <laughs> it depends on the client for sure. But uh, but yeah, a little softer. Everyone's got a number for a size of client that they would be willing to take a ton of crap from to keep that client in the practice. So yeah, I don't like the word insist, but you want to be the kind of practice that people want to aggregate their assets with. All right, Ben, we're going to put you on the spot with this next one. Um, you've now worked with FAs and wholesalers for many years. This is coming from Steve side in Marin County, California. I don't know. (laughs) He's a real sharp one. Um, so what makes, you know, the good ones and what makes the bad ones, both at the wholesaler level and at the advisor level, some of those characteristics. Sure. Um, so let me start with the wholesaler side. The biggest differentiator I've seen from the successful to those that aren't successful is that emotional intelligence component. Um, and what's so frustrating is it's the hardest thing to teach. It's you know it's not the, the alphas and the betas, things like that. It's understanding what a client needs to hear, where they need to be pushed, where you need to pull back, uh, and how to manage a relationship uh, that makes them so good. Do you think it is teachable? Or is that something that you screen out in interviewing? So I, if you find out how to screen out an interview, let me know, because I haven't figured it out yet. The most success I've had in this may say more about me than it does about uh, successful wholesalers is getting out of an interview and just having dinner with somebody and seeing how they treat the waiter. How do they act after two cocktails? How do they treat the valet? Is there some wit or are they sharp when something goes, goes awry? Somebody drops something. How do they respond? Um, those real life in-person engagements that you can't stage in an interview uh, have been the best predictors for me of success on the wholesaling side versus the individuals who came in and blew me away with their intelligence have often lacked that on the back end. Now, the bad one, I mean, it's easy to say those without you know, emotional intelligence are the bad ones, but trying to look at this from a different perspective, 
the the ones that I've seen struggle are those that have an inability to add value on their own beyond just the product they're bringing to the table, uh, the inability to connect in that personal product or uh, practice level are those that have really struggled. And uh, you know, not having emotional intelligence certainly plays into that, uh, but you've got to have your own brand. And it's great to have you know, a touchstone beside you or whatever you know, fun family you work for, but at the end of the day, these people are doing business with Steve Side and Kurt Dupuis and Ben Algae. Um, there's some credibility in the, in the business, but you better have your own brand. You better bring something to the table every day or else you fall into that you know, pit of wholesalers that people just don't want to see. Yeah. Now talk about you know, financial advisors, the good and the bad there. Yeah. So I was trying to do the math just in, in thinking about our conversation, how many advisors I've met with over the last decade. And it, it's thousands. It's thousands and thousands. And I've met with some incredible ones that I would just give all my wealth to. And I've met with some that you wonder where they got their first dollar. The common thread among those that I really appreciated my conversations with was that they were genuine. They were upfront on what they could control and what they didn't control and how they were going to try to help uh, in a very genuine manner. Um, you know, the, the, old, the old phrase, mystery is margin. If you don't know what I do, I can charge you more for it because you can't replicate it. They kind of blow that out of the water and just say, listen, I can't control what the market does. I can position you as best as possible uh, for the risk that you have. And then we're going to monitor that going forward. Uh, the ones that I've seen that I've connected with less or you know, wouldn't trust with my, my family assets are those that have, have an answer for everything. It's just complete polish and they don't, they're not there to learn. I, I, I take the opinion that I can learn something from every person I meet. And like, that's the most fun part of our job, which meets so many people and you can learn so many different things. When you shut that door and think you've learned everything, it's really hard to connect with people. And so that's where I've seen uh, the biggest deficiency, I'd say, on the, uh, the advisor side. That's a great answer. Um, okay, next question is coming from Brandon, San Francisco, California. What is the ideal amount of clients per FA? Kurt, you want to start and take a stab at this one? If we're speaking in averages from from outside sources and what we see into the data, it's about a buck and a quarter, I'd say. 125 per FA seems like, feels like, I think is a, a pretty reasonable number. Ben, any any comments on that? Yeah, I think that's a good number. Um, I would say almost universally, uh, the answer is fewer than you have today. Um, yeah, and I think that's maybe painted with too broad of a brush. But when we work with teams around the country, um, there is so much time spent on the bottom end of the book. And if you think about, uh, for a typical client service model, uh, your C level clients are going to require about three hours of proactive client service a year, and your A clients are going to require eleven hours. Now you can typically remove about 70 C clients with about three A clients. And when you do the math, the amount of time you can save, it's incredible. And the discrepancy is incredible. So we've all you know, seen practices where you know, these are the people that started with me and they've been with me through my entire business. And I can't move out of the practice. I get it. Uh, but if you're looking to grow, shrinking is typically the fastest way to grow in our business. Yeah, I, I've seen just a couple of other points. I, I've seen some some financial professionals who really could handle larger books well, they are very, very rare. Um, but they happen. You know, I've seen dynamo type financial professionals, um, one that listens to this show in particular, that can do 300 clients and it's her lifestyle. And she, she just, she's a dynamo. 
Uh, but the average financial professional, that's not going to work for. So I think the number that they described is right. It's probably one to 150. The other thing I would say is it depends on how your support staff and team are structured. If you have a, a team structure that allows you to be what I would call a briefcase at a financial professional, where the only thing that you do is meet with prospects and meet with clients and every other part of your operation is handled with the right support staff, if you got to that point, you could be at the upper end of that range. On the flip side, if you're on your own and you have limited support staff, then you're at the lower end of that range. And I think even 80 to 100 is probably not unreasonable. But you know, I think the importance in, in this business of client experience cannot be overstated. Ben, let's say you you know, the financial professional who's listening to this is agreeing, yeah, I probably have too many relationships. I'm a sole practitioner with 350. What would you suggest? What steps would you suggest that they take to start to think through some of that? Yeah. So you got to start with segmentation. Um, take a look at the practice, not just on an assets and revenue perspective, but look at it qualitatively and score those clients out. Do you enjoy working with them? Uh, are they a referral source? Is there a potential upside or liquidity event coming up in the future? Uh, and get a sense of who really are your A, B, and C clients. Uh, and then determine how much time those take. And what you're going to find is you've got a deficit of clients. At that level, unless you have 250 clients in firm discretionary accounts that are just being run on their own and you're only servicing 50, uh, I can assure you there's things falling through the cracks. So you, you segment them out. You determine what you want your client service model to be and what you want your brand to be. Um, because your brand is about as good as the lowest level of client service that you're providing. And then you apply those two together. And from there, you end up with an amount of time you can spend on this. Typically, it's more than there is uh, you know, available in the year. And so then you got to make decisions. Do I reduce my client service or do I reduce the number of clients? Uh, and I think it's more often than not, the better answer is reduce the number of clients. Yeah, or add capacity. Or add capacity. You don't get a partner. And yep. Or a very good assistant, to your earlier point. If, if you've got a, a dynamo of a CSA, uh, it can add a tremendous amount of capacity. Awesome. Well, Ben, we're going to close up here, but it was a delight to have you on, my friend. Thank you for getting dressed up in the suit and the tie and going into our offices and joining us on, the, uh, on this. I appreciate it. Nothing but the best for the best. I really appreciate uh, you guys having me on and, uh, and all the work you guys are doing. So you guys all know out there, you can reach out to us at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. But Ben, share your email address um, for folks that want to get in touch with you. Yes. Uh, you can reach me at benjamin.alge, A-L-G-E, at touchstonefunds.com. All right. Well, thanks to our friend Ben Alge. Costanza Corner is next. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. We are in our Costanza Corner. And Kurt, I have a pretty good one for you today, I think. You're going to like this. We are- Well, uh, I'll be the judge of that. Let's see. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you know, we are always doing these innovative, amazing things out here in California. Um, this is kind of where it happens. This, the good weather, the technology, we've got it all going on here. Um, besides the state constantly being on fire, it's it's a great place. Mighty Buildings is able to complete a home in just 24 hours with walls, floors, ceilings, because they 3D print them in a warehouse in Oakland. 
okay, hold on a second. Yeah. I'm printing this in 24 hours and because I'm doing it so quickly to combat that, I have to call it mighty buildings. Oh, and so that, you're- That's the, kind of reaching. Instead, how, ins- how mighty are they actually? Instead of <laughs> appreciating what I just said, that they can 3D print a house, you're worried about the name? When I read that, that you can 3D print a house, by the way, there are multiple companies that are doing this now. I'm like, you could 3D print a house? This is incredible to me. It blew me I, that's away. Cool. Yeah. So customers can choose different sizes from one bedroom, one bath to three bedroom, et cetera. You know, they're saying it's cheaper. So 350 square foot unit only costs 115,000. And they're doing an entire neighborhood uh, down in Mexico, different companies doing that. So I just think this is amazing. They're printing houses, man. They're printing them. So I, I have a couple of thoughts here. First of okay. all, growing up in South Louisiana, I would be very curious of the hurricane status of, of, of said houses yeah. as the true test for how mighty a house is. But secondly, I've actually talked about this with buddies of like buying one big property, like buy a lake, and then everyone having their own little tiny house. This could be a great solution You're going to start your own little, what are those communes? Like a, Yeah, I'm going to have a lake house commune. <laughs> wow. Kurtz, that would be good. I'm, I'm having my own mighty house by a lake. That's how I'll know I've arrived. You know, if you were planning on asking me, just wait for another 10 years when I'm burned out, I'm being in corporate and all that stuff. I, I might join your commune. Like I have that inner hippie in me, Kurt. I want you to know that it's, it's there. We'll, we'll be open to your application. Okay, good. Barring a background study. <laughs> so thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.